Oh, thank you, Gospel Ensemble, and thank you, the Jones family. And oh. in, in the first service, I found out that the baby is due on Pride March Day. So we have a Pride baby on the way. So June 27th. Uh, in the first service, I also far- forgot to mention Joey as part of the Jones family. So Joey, too, even though he's over in children. And Kennedy. And Kennedy, too. So, And it's growing still. Oh, goodness. Same love. Love is patient. Love is kind. Not crying on Sunday. The lyrics went on to say, no law is going to change us. We have to change us. Whatever God you believe in, we come from the same one. Strip away the fear. Strip away the fear. Underneath it, all is the same love. God is patient. God is kind. Love is patient. Love is kind. These words are familiar to us from the book of Corinthians, chapter 13. Many, many weddings. It talks the love chapter And what we don't recognize often about that love chapter when we get to the point of love is patient, love is kind, is that Paul has been telling them what they're not getting right for the first 12 chapters. You know, he's been telling them, you're not getting it. You're not getting what love is. You're not getting what this Jesus thing is. And then it seems like at the end of the 12th chapter, he changes his way of thinking and he says, well, I'm just going to tell them about love. Love is patient, love is kind, and this is who you're supposed to be. So some say go back and read that whole book of Corinthians and read those first 12 chapters, you know, and we have one of those pieces from it, at chapter 11, in our, gospel, in our reading for today. And if you notice, I would like to start it off the way that Paul might have said, I told you already, I told you already what Jesus meant by this. And each time you do it, you're supposed to remember the servant that Jesus was to all of us. And that Jesus came in love to serve all so that all may be free. And so we get to this part. Love is patient. Love is kind. And it's Paul's like last-ditch effort to get them to get it. Please, Corinthians, let's get it. Now, the second letter to Corinthians is much warmer. But this first one is, I told you so. I already told you. And part of the challenge with them was how they were actually doing communion. And today in our list of sacraments that we're talking about, communion is for today. And so they were having special private parties that only some people could get to on time. And they were even competing in their parties for their communion meals. Which feast did you you go to my feast? I'm going to have margaritas with salt on them. How about my feast? I'm going to have a special blue sapphire drink that you can have over here at my feast. You know, so this competition among tables and who could put on the best table and the best feast. And this is going on in the city of Corinth. And they're not getting it. Because sometimes what they would do is they would put out all the food earlier and all of the wealthy folks would have first dibs at the table. And then the people could finally get off work and get there, got the crumbs, if there were any crumbs left. So they were having some problems trying to live it out the way that Jesus had intended it. Everyone at the table, everyone a full meal, everyone celebrating God's love, not some get there early and eat it all. And then if you're late because you had to work the second shift, you might not get any. So Paul just throws his hands up in the air and says, well, let's talk about love for a little while. 
Love is patient, love is kind. And this is what these feasts are supposed to be about. Everybody at the table sharing what's there before them, everybody getting enough. But, you know, communion has changed over the years, right? So we're talking about a table down in the middle of the family and everyone's, you know, hands taking what they need to then it gets moved out of the family and then up onto a platform. And then in history, for a while, it gets put all the way back at the back wall and no one can ever get there except for the special one. Special ones, they get to go up there and they have this little conversation with God, you know, and then they might give you a crumb. Not what Jesus intended for communion to be for us. There's this uh, show I love. Uh, it happened while you were sleeping. It's a little romantic comedy. I like those things. Walter goes in the other room. But I like those, I like those romantic comedies. And there's this scene where the, where the family that's adopting this new person into the family goes to communion at their Catholic church together. And there's the mother in the scene, and she's saying, oh, I missed the Latin mass. It was so much better when you didn't know what was going on. You know, and then, and then she goes on a little further. She said, why do they have Joe up there reading? He does pot. So in the same, in the same little conversation, I, I think it's wonderful, actually. It's reflective of, do I really want to know what's going on? Do I really want to explain the mystery which we can't explain? You know, the Latin is so much better. I don't even know the words. It's just pretty. But I like, I like to judge the people that are up there to see if they should be up there or not. Not what communion is about uh, at all. We even fought wars over communion. Consubstantiation versus transubstantiation versus merely a symbol and the Protestants against the Catholics, against the Lutherans and who was right and who was wrong. And you know what? Jesus didn't care. Jesus wanted to eat. (laughs) Jesus didn't care about your definition of what you believed about what was going on. Remember last week I told you about my time with young people and we did nachos and Coca-Cola for communion because it was our daily bread. But in my life I've had different experiences of communion and I have some pictures of some of them for you. Uh, This one was the first communion I ever had was with those trays and the glass cups that they put up and down the aisles and those little wafer crackers that were really neither wafer nor cracker and they were kind of compressed together. And so I received this at St. Paul's United Methodist Church downtown. It's by the Mecham Fountains. It's got that big Gothic tower. It's where I grew up for the first 12 years of my life. And my sister, when we were six or seven, we used to run down the center aisle all the way to the front of the church, and we would gobble up the rest of those crackers that had no taste to them. But we, we saw that as a snack, right? Juice and crackers. Run for it. Go get it. And what I remember to this day is no one stopped us. They let us run up there and gorge down on tasteless crackers. It was a good thing for them, for us to know we were at home. And then, I don't know how they did this, went to church, and somehow they made Wonder Bread into precisely square cubes. Y'all remember taking this kind of communion? It was like, it was white bread, like Wonder Bread, but they were perfectly, perfectly cubed. I just don't know how they did that. And from there, we went on, we went on, and they started to get a little creative. So, so we had still the cups, but one loaf. 
symbolically taking of one loaf instead of all of the little wafers that we, that we shared. And so I thought it was interesting. That was interesting to me to have someone tear off the piece of bread and give it to you as you received. And then after that, um, heaven forbid, one cup? You want me to drink of that same cup? You know, if you've, got, if you've grown up with little bitty glasses, that's a big leap to take. You know, they, they assured me it was safe, and so I did. But, you know, different ways that we take communion, and none of them are wrong, and all of them are right. But the common cup and the common bread, symbolic for that tradition of what was going on. You know, I even at one point in time celebrated communion with a Roman Catholic at St. Thomas University. We were in their student union, unions celebrating communion. And to my horror of horrors, when I looked at the table and I was about to bless it, the wine that I was about to bless was white wine. <laughs> That's not right. <laughs> it was white wine. I said, what's going on here? And afterwards, I asked the priest what's happening. He said, it's much easier to get the stains out. <laughs> you know, very practical. The Bible doesn't say it has to be red. Or fermented even, but you know, white wine, what in the world? So, blew my mind again. We didn't start a war about it, but I still was suspicious of that. You notice we still use red grape juice here at Resurrection for all the symbols that that has to do with. Nora Ephron says this, A family is a group of people who eat the same thing for dinner. Family is a group of people who eat the same thing for dinner. I had to think about that because I wasn't sure my family of three qualified. We don't always eat the same thing for dinner. We might get to that about three or four times a week, but not every night. But as a family of faith, we come to this table and we eat the same thing for dinner. It's a part of our story. Whether we have wafers that taste good or not, you know, uh, whatever happens in it, we experience it together. Uh, if it was really stale that Sunday... Or if by accident, like today, everyone gets a gluten-free wafer. <laughs> you know, we get to experience it together as we do that. Oh, my. But Jesus, as I said earlier, was an eater. And I appreciate that about Jesus. That's someone I can follow fully. Um, and throughout the Gospels, you can see Jesus eating his way through the Gospels with different families and different environments. And so I threw some scriptures up here for you to remember some of those stories. After the wedding at Cana where he, you know, made water into wine, then we have a scripture story in Mark where uh, the disciples have this crowd of people, thousands of people, you know, and they say, what do we do? And Jesus says, well, give them something to eat. And the disciples say back, you know what? We don't have enough money for that. What do you want us to go bankrupt to give all these people something to eat? And Jesus says, yes, give them something to eat. And we have the miracle of the multiplying of the fish and the loaves so that we can then celebrate God's love for us in abundance. Then in Luke, Jesus came by. He looked up at Zacchaeus and called him by name. Zacchaeus, quick, come down. I must be a guest in your home today. You know what that means? Go get the guest room ready and prepare a feast. Because Jesus is coming to your house, and when Jesus comes to your house, he doesn't come alone. He brings an entourage with him, you know. So Zacchaeus could have been wondering, how am I going to fit all these people around this dining table? What is going to happen in this place, in this space? But Jesus might create a feast for you, be the host. And Jesus might say, oh, no, you're the host. Invite me. 
I'm coming to eat at your home tonight. Part of this eating and food through it. John there was, a ta- was there at table reclining in Jesus' bosom, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. They were in close proximity to one another. They were often on the ground level, beside one another, around a table. So here's the disciple whom Jesus loved, leaning up against Jesus while they're eating. That kind of eating together. Christians were first, first known because they ate together. First known because they ate together. And then Jesus took bread, gave thanks, broke it, gave it to them, saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me that last week, that same night. Jesus is giving them something to do because he's going to be gone in remembrance of me. Take this bread. Now, this is Jesus eats even after resurrection. Y'all know that? That might not have been part of your Bible study growing up. But Jesus ate through the Gospels and eats after resurrection. So here he is telling them that uh, on the road to Emmaus, they bring him into the table, and in the table he is eating with them. He took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and gave it to them. And they knew who Jesus was because of the way he was eating with them, because of the way he was at the table. This is when they knew who Jesus was. The eating part again, Christians ate together. And then last, this is also a resurrection account. Jesus not only ate after Jesus was resurrected, Jesus fixed the meal. Jesus said, fixing barbecue on the beach and says, come on over, have some food. So we have a Savior who eats. And we have a Savior who thought it was important enough that on the last night he was together with us, said, you need to keep eating together. And every time you eat together, remember me. Remember me and these simple things of bread and the simple cup. Remember me, Jesus kept telling them. Barbara Brown Taylor puts it this way. With all the conceptual truths in the universe at Jesus' disposal, he did not give them something to think about together when he was gone. Instead, he gave them concrete things to do specific ways of being together in their bodies that would go on teaching them what they needed to know when Jesus was no longer around to teach them himself. Do this, Jesus said. Do this in remembrance of me. Not what do you believe about it. Just do it. Eat together. Remember me. As a younger person of faith in my early 20s, I went to a church where I went to a Bible study on Wednesday night, and it was a fun time, uh, age range, big age range of people in the group, and we had a fun time with one another, and we ended each night with communion. It became important for us to give each other communion and receive communion as part of the Bible study class, and it was even so important for us to eat together that we would eat outside of Wednesday night. Imagine that. And so our favorite time to eat together outside of Wednesday night was at this place called the Brazos River Bottom. Some of you may know about it. You could country and western dance there, whether you led or followed or did both, you were welcome, you know. And so on Tuesday nights, they had steak night. And they had this big old barbecue pit on the back of the club. And you go out back, and they would have steaks and potatoes for you. And the steaks would be round in this plastic thing you had to undo. And you had to grill your own, throw them on the grill, watch it. If you burn it, it's your fault. If you forgot to cook it, it's your fault. 
if the plastic starts melting on your meat because you forgot to take the plastic off before you put it on the grill, you know, it's up to you. And so our Bible study group would go on Tuesday nights and have steak together. And we had so much fun that people on Tuesday night would start approaching our group and say, who, who are you? How do y'all know each other? What, what's, what's going on here? Y'all seem a little bit too friendly to us. What's going on? And we'd proudly say, we know each other from Bible study at church. The rest of the people at the bar, you know each other from Bible study at church? And we said, yes. And we're excited to be together and eat together. We're remembering God's love each and every time we do. And some of those people even came to church. They were first known because they ate together. Even in the back part of the BRB grill, having steak. You know, communion is important because it kind of steals the show. It steals the show from our ego, from anything else of us being center stage, and it puts the sacrifice, the service, the being of Christ, a servant in the middle. It says that it reminds us that grace is abundant as tears and as faith is as simple as food. Communion reminds us grace is open to all of us, not restricted. God's love flows in and through us abundantly. Theologian N.T. Wright says it this way, when Jesus wanted to fully explain what his forthcoming death was all about, he didn't give a theory. He didn't even give them a set of scriptural texts. He gave them a meal. Nora Gallagher says, and I have a quote for this up here, if we did nothing else, if nothing was placed in our hands, we would have done two-thirds of what we needed to be done, which is to admit that we simply do not have all the answers. We simply do not have all the power. It's God's grace and love that feeds us and carries us through. It's not about us getting it right or being perfect or being righteous or being ready or earning it. It's about admitting that we don't have that power and God's grace flows over us. Now, grace can't come to us if we're still counting what we owe or what they owe or if I'm righteous enough or if they're righteous enough if so-and-so's done pot that morning before they read. You know, grace can't come to us if we keep score. It's about all of us with open hands ready to receive God's love in a crumb, reminding us that we are beloved. John Wesley, who founded the Methodist Church, said communion is a converting grace. Converting grace. He said, don't keep it from anyone. Let everyone have communion. Because he came from the Anglican tradition where only so many people, if you were baptized and professed certain promises, could you receive. And Wesley said, it's a converting ordinance. What he meant by that is if you do it long enough, you'll get it. If you participate long enough, you'll get it. It reminds me of a slogan in AA where they say, fake it until you make it. Fake it until you make it. Keep going, keep doing, keep receiving, keep praying, knowing that love will find you. And ultimately, you'll get it. That grace is bigger than all of us. 
and already given that you are worth it and do not need to earn it. Our own founder, Reverend Troy Perry, found out the same thing. The first communion he ever held in his home, 12 people showed up, not communion, worship service, 12 people showed up. He was from the history of the Church of God in Christ, and they didn't do too much about communion, if at all. But he had decided in this first service in his home that they would add communion. And so the way Reverend Elder Troy tells the story is that he preached, the service went okay, he was delighted that anybody showed up, 12 people did, and then he called for time of, for communion, and then three people took communion together. And Troy said at that moment he knew. At that moment he felt it. He felt the grace overflowing, God's love surrounding them, and he knew that he was called to be a part of this movement now known as MCC. It wasn't in what he knew and was familiar with. It's when he tried something, he had no idea what it would mean. And it washed over him to a new place of vocation and where he was to be a part of. Have you ever been lost and only known to find yourself at this table? Have you ever been wandering so far away and the only thing that brought you back was this table? When I was young and my parents had kicked me out of the house because I'd come out as being gay, I lost church because mom called the church very helpfully to tell them, well, you know, Troy's gay. He shouldn't be here anymore. You know, we reconciled. But there was a six-month period of time where I missed church because I was told I couldn't go there and I didn't have anywhere else to go that I knew of. And during that time, I was a little bit lost and wandering around. One Sunday, I decided to get up and go to a church down in Montrose. It might be safe down there. Might be. Not all of them are, but it might be. You might pick one that's safe. So I went to a church and sat on the back row because that's where it's safe. Sat on the back row and listened for the sermon and any of the prayers and anything that would kick me out or tell me I wasn't worthy. And it didn't happen. And then I noticed that they were doing communion, which I liked because I knew how to run to the front and get the crumbs. You know? And so I noticed they were doing communion, so I thought it must be first Sunday because that's when you do communion. I found out later they do it every Sunday at that church. But I decided I would go. So I went down to the front of the church. They had a small rail that you would kneel. So I knelt down, put my elbows on the rail, and put my hands out hoping a crumb would come. And it did. Then after the crumb, which I took and I ate, because I didn't know I was supposed to keep it and dip it, I took it and I ate it. And the big person named Jean, who was coming along in a robe, happy, singing, with this chalice, like this, back and forth, just pushed it at me like that. And I thought I was just going to be drenched with this and I put my lips to it and received both the crumb and the cup. And I started crying. This table brings us back. The first Christians were known because they ate together. Thanks be to God. Amen. <laughs>